This podcast is brought to you by the Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. Your host is editor Mike King, and this episode is kindly supported by Fordo. Shipping products as easy as sending emails. In this episode, we'll be hearing direct from Glasgow, where world leaders are congregating for COP26 and meeting many of you as the last chance saloon for meaningful progress on climate change and one that could shape supply chain planning and investment for the next decade. As the Northern Hemisphere winter closes in, we'll examine why the very same climate change is posing a real threat to cargo. In an exclusive interview with IKEA, we'll hear how one of the world's largest shippers is coping with logistics and supplier bottlenecks and how this will shape its future sourcing arrangements. And with US ports facing gridlock, the Air Forwarders Association's Brandon Freed explains how a very stretched US air cargo supply chain is coping with record demand. So you have the shortage of workers within the ground handling environment. And then of course you, you compound that with the lack of warehousing and poor road infrastructure and whatnot within these airports. And you have yourself a cocktail for some significant delays. Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Climate change. Should you care? The answer is, of course, yes. But don't take that from me. Take it from Lodestar news editor Nick Savides, who joined me today in the first week of November from Glasgow, where he is reporting on all things freight and climate change at COP26, also known by its full title, which is the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference. Greetings, Nick. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well. Nick, COP26 has been trailed worldwide as the event where real progress simply has to be made on climate change. What's the atmosphere like up there and what does all of this mean for the world of freight and shipping? Why should people care? Well, it's cold up here. I could tell you that right <laughs> from, from the word go. But it is uh, a bright morning and uh, I suspect that that reflects the mood at COP26. The feeling is that things have to change. And that's being reflected in some of the things that's already been uh, mentioned and happened at, at COP26, even on the first day, uh, the first full day, uh, November the 1st, there was the announcement of the agreement on deforestation and maintaining trees and uh, rainforests. But there's also been a big announcement for shipping from the Danish Prime Minister, along with the UK and the US, uh, where they're going to push IMO to zero carbon by 2050. That means doubling the speed at which the decarbonisation of shipping takes place. We were going to get to, to 50% by 2050. Now they want it to be absolute zero by 2050. Are we expecting more announcements in the, the coming days? Well, I, I imagine so. Um, when I spoke to Kitak Lim, who is also up here, the IMO Secretary General, he was hoping for a successful COP26. He said that that would drive IMO and its drive for faster and more rapid decarbonisation. So there is going to be a debate on uh, the maritime on the 9th of uh, November, I believe, that will start. Sadly, I won't be here for that, but we will, of course, report on it because aviation and maritime are major, major emitters of, of carbon. As John Kerry pointed out, maritime, if it would be a country, would be the eighth largest emitter of carbon. So yes, I expect more. You mentioned 2050, there's one, one time frame. 
But if I'm trying to plan for a future of sustainable supply chains, what do I need to have on my radar? What do I need to be thinking about now? How urgent is all of this going to happen? I think the urgency is going to increase. I think the feeling at COP26 is that there is no turning back. There is no time for obfuscation. What we see today in shipping is high freight rates. Perhaps they won't be as high going forward, but I think what freight forwarders and shippers will have to uh, acclimatize to is higher costs because decarbonization will have a cost involved. And that's, that's what they need to get ready for. And also to have shorter supply chains and possibly more of them. So you have some kind of redundancy in your supply chains. So the, the costs will increase. How does this play out for container shipping and shipping in general, Nick? I mean, there's been this reluctance by carriers to make a commitment to new fuels such as ammonia, whether it be electric, maybe green hydrogen, in part because of the availability of those fuels and also the lack of infrastructure to supply them to vessels. Some ship owners have opted for LNG as an interim fuel. Has there now been a mood shift on the hows and whens of moving to cleaner fuels and what those fuels might be? So I think that's a really good question. There are two answers to this, really. There's, there's two separate bits. The first bit is uh, I asked John Kerry yesterday why they were aiming at, at maritime and given that there are no fuels available. You know, we know that there's methanol, we know that there's ammonia, but they're not enough to fuel the industry and there needs to be, you know, they should be targeting the, the fuel industry. He said that in order for that to happen, it needed companies like IKEA, like Walmart, like the, the large shippers to commit to getting to zero, which they've already done. Maersk was on that panel with John Kerry and uh, Meta, the Danish prime minister yesterday, because uh, Maersk has, has made the jump from the current fuels or making the jump to zero carbon fuels in the future. And that is, according to John Kerry, going to give the industry momentum to decarbonize and that momentum is growing. So following the meeting, I spoke to Henrietta Tigerson from Maersk, Aping Willow Maersk. And I said to her, well, did you dodge the bullet basically with LNG? And she said, well, I don't really want to talk about our competitors. And I said, well, I'm not really asking about your competitors. I'm asking about the maritime industry. Should the maritime industry now ditch LNG basically? And her simple answer was yes. Nick, one element of climate change that has a direct impact on shipping is more turbulent weather, as you know. In late October, you covered the loss of more than 100 containers being shipped on the Zim Kingston off the Canadian coast near Vancouver. Now, I highlight this because we're hitting the Northern Hemisphere winter again. And last winter, we saw a spate of similar losses. Now, to put those box overboard losses into perspective, on average, 1,382 containers were lost at sea per year in 2018 and 2019, according to the World Shipping Council. Yet between November the 30th of 2020 and mid-February of this year, marine insurers estimated that some 3,000 containers carrying products worth millions of dollars were lost overboard, mostly in the Pacific. Now, I asked Michael Page, a broadcast meteorologist at Flawless Forecast, if there were any weather commonalities between the Zim Kingston box losses and that multitude of incidents last winter. So there are definitely general similarities, although there are some finer details that are different. So basically what we have happening 
consistently, whether it's over open water or near the coastline, as we saw this time, is that storms are definitely getting stronger, faster. Process called bombogenesis is occurring more often. So in the media, that's been dubbed now these bomb cyclones, just because that's a little bit easier for people to digest. So last winter, a lot of this was happening in the middle of the ocean over the Pacific, you were getting these huge waves because storms were developing so rapidly, they were becoming so powerful. So wave heights this past winter were running way above the average height across the Pacific from 2017 to 2019. There's actually data to show that the waves are much bigger. Now data is somewhat limited in that part of the world anyway, just because there aren't a lot of people there, but this data was coming from just south of the Aleutian Islands in Alaska. So we know there were bigger waves so the next question is, well, what causes these bigger waves? And in that case, it's definitely these stronger storms that are becoming more powerful, lower pressure generating the bigger waves. So then if you know you have stronger storms, well, why are we getting stronger storms? And part of that has to do with warmer ocean temperatures in parts of the Pacific, running several degrees above average in some cases last winter. So more fuel for these storms to kind of drive off of. A lot of times these storms draw off of the clash of cold and warm. And when you go over that warm water and you get the clash of warm and cold air above, it's like the perfect recipe. So that was happening over the middle of the ocean this past winter, why we were seeing a lot of cargo loss in the middle of the ocean. Now with this current pattern that we're going into more of a La Nina pattern, we're seeing that bombogenesis occur a little closer to the coastline. So in this most recent incident, it was actually very close to shore that we had this problem, but the storm was really forming, deepening, and becoming more powerful closer to the coastline. And you said there's a lack of data in some of those areas, but can we say if, if there's any historical data, is it possible to definitively say that the, you know, the, the warmer, the weather patterns that you're talking about, the warmer oceans, is this, as we're talking, you know, as COP26 kicks off, is this to do with climate change? There's definitely a climate change component. Now, the extent of climate change in each of these incidents is really what takes more time to dive into. But without question, climate change is creating warmer oceans, and that is adding fuel and allowing these storms to get even stronger, which, as we said, then generates lower pressure, bigger waves, and potentially more loss for ships trying to go through all those waves. So no doubt about it, it's a component that climate change is causing here. We can't really say that it's causing more storms, but what we can say is that it's causing more storms to intensify more than they would, if that makes sense. So if I'm a shipper or a carrier looking at what the next few months, the winter, what should I be doing should I be preparing that we might have more similar weather events of the of either what we saw last winter or that we've just seen recently off the coast of Canada? Absolutely. There are going to be more storms getting to these lower pressures, so they're more intense, and you're going to have to deal with that. Now, as I said, the pattern is going to change a little bit. This year, for example, La Nina is kicking in, so that means that right around the equator, the ocean is actually chillier than average, but that creates a big area of blocking high pressure. High pressure brings fair weather right in the middle of the Pacific, so conditions actually may be calmer than last year across some of the main portions of the shipping channel, but if you have calm weather somewhere, it's stormy somewhere else. So that pushes the storminess a little closer to the coastline. So maybe you have to be careful as you're coming into your final approach, either on the western coast of Canada or the western coast of the United States. So the bottom line is you need to have your ships ready to face these storms, whether it's over the open water like we had last year, a little closer to the coastline 
this year. And of course, everyone's trying to get something on a boat these days, it seems. So there's probably more pressure to put more on boats as these storms are becoming more intense. So a bunch of different factors coming together. Michael Page, thanks for joining me on the Lodestar podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Nick, the Zim Kingston container losses and fire on board, the cleanup of all those containers won't be easy, will it? It's not going to be easy. And it's a kind of inauspicious start for, for the winter. I mean, I, I've seen a photograph of a container lying on rocks off the coast of uh, Vancouver, and I'm not even sure how, they, how they're going to get equipment down to lift that off the rocks. Uh, it, it is at the bottom of a cliff. But yes, it's going to be uh, really problematic. And a lot of them have sunk, of course. So it's a question of how deep they are. So there's an element of pollution there as well. There is. An investigation into the incident is ongoing and we don't want to preempt that. But you raised questions about the failure of the vessel to seek shelter ahead of that storm. Yes, it was something that was raised with me by the International Transport Workers Federation, Peter LaHaye, who lives in Vancouver. His feeling was that Transport Canada, the, the, the government in Canada, doesn't want ships anchoring off the coast of Vancouver Island. That is true. Trans Transport Canada did confirm that they are um, looking at reducing the anchorages around the island, but they haven't yet. So my question is, if you look at the track of the Zim Kingston, it kind of circled for a while, for, for a day or so, outside of the um, sheltered waters and the Canadian Chamber of Shipping were asking why the vessel didn't uh, enter the sheltered waters along with other vessels that, that had taken shelter from that particular storm. Time will tell, time will tell. The amazing feature for me about covering this containers overboard phenomena is just how surprisingly little cargo is actually insured against such losses. Only around 50% on average of cargo shipments by sea are actually insured. And, and that figure has not increased despite the rising numbers of boxes being lost at sea. That's according to Peregrine Stores Fox, the TT Club's risk management director. I asked Peregrine to estimate what the average loss for a shipper would be should they lose a box overboard this winter. I'd suggest that the existing value range of fifty to 100,000 US dollars per container uh, would be an effective rule of thumb. Inevitably, I would urge the use of cargo or risks cover, particularly highlighting that it's not simply looking at the value at risk, but recognizing potential unwelcome costs relating to, for example, general average or salvage contributions following an incident. It might also be relevant in the context of supply chain delays and congestion to point out that cargo insurance continues to apply in general terms until the cargo reaches its destination. At the end of the day, insurance is all about sharing losses that an entity cannot bear itself. The supply chain loss experience globally justifies diligent consideration of purchasing appropriate insurance cover. Nick, do those numbers surprise you? It doesn't really surprise me. If you think that most of the shippers on any vessel are going to be small and medium-sized freight forwarders, you know, many of them simply can't afford the extra costs involved with insurance. Nick, thank you. I know you have to shoot off now to a COP26 function, but thanks for joining me. That's been a pleasure, Mike. Now, we may have said au revoir to Nick, but I'm delighted to say that that loss has been made good. Alex Lenane, Lodestar publisher, is here. Hello, Alex. Hello, Mike. 
Alex, before we hear from Brandon Freed, the executive director of the Air Forders Association, let's quickly turn back to COP26. You wrote a great story last week explaining why time is running out for carriers if they want air cargo to be sustainable. Why aren't carriers doing enough on this? Well, to be fair, some of them are, but it's it's very few and far between. It's tended to be European carriers so far. The Asians, the Americans, slightly behind the curve on getting things sorted. But I think the thing that is most frustrating is that when you talk to the airlines, they'll all say, oh, we've got a really new fleet. We're cutting emissions like that. Or or we've, we've brought in electric ground vehicles. That's just 3% of the emissions needed to reduce the, the vehicles on the ground, the ground infrastructure. There's an awful lot of other things to do. And a, a decent ESG report just isn't going to cut the mustard. And some of the larger carriers, when you read their reports, they don't have targets in, they don't have monitoring in. It's just a, we're trying to be green without actually pledging to do anything at all. And that I find very disappointing, to be honest. And when we're looking at policy and, and COP26, I mean, the elephant in the room for airlines is jet fuel, right? Well, yes, IATA is committed to net zero by 2050 for its members. And to do that, they're going to have to use sustainable aviation fuel, at least to begin with. There's more technologies like power to liquids coming in. But sustainable aviation fuel is going to cut about 60% of the emissions needed to be cut. So the problem is that it needs scaling up. So the airlines have to commit to helping produce it, getting customers to pay more. It does cost more. But they have to do it. And I mean, uh, carriers like Lufthansa Cargo, they're doing phenomenal things. Air France, KLM, again, they've got a, they're building a plant in the Netherlands for sustainable aviation fuel. But the others have to start working out how they are going to change their source of fuel. And one of the difficulties for them at COP26 will be that the governments will start deciding whether to invest and regulate to help decarbonise air travel or whether they're just going to legislate to restrict air travel. Now, the airlines are not going to want air travel to be restricted. They're going to want investment to help decarbonise it. And so they should be watching very closely to find out which way the governments are going to choose to go. Lots to be decided for carriers then. Absolutely. And certainly we're looking at, as we are with shipping, we're looking at potentially higher costs as these new fuels are introduced. Just sticking with costs, if, if I may... Looking at ocean shipping pricing as we're coming towards the end of the year now, the Baltic Exchange's FBX index has, has rather plateaued on the Asia to Europe and uh, Asia to the US trade lanes at near record levels, of course. What's been happening, particularly into Europe, on that BAI air cargo index? Well, the one everyone's watching is um, transatlantic because with passengers coming back, there's, they're expecting a lot more capacity and so they're the sense that those lanes will will see some declines in yields, but you're not really seeing it properly yet. I mean, Shanghai to Europe, looking at the latest index, is actually just gone up, which would be a mark of you know intense demand at the moment. But we're not seeing any major major changes at the moment in, in markets that you would have thought that they were. There's been a, a slight a slight rise, I would say, but nothing more than would be expected in in the current demand period. Let's have a look at that uh, US market then. On, on which note, let me bring in Brandon Freed, who's the executive director of the US-based Air Forwarders Association. Hello, Brandon. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. 
Michael, good to see you again. Brandon, the Baltic Air Freight Index has in September been pretty much constantly over 4,000 points or so. So at record levels and higher even than during the PPE crisis of 2020. As things stand, we have a shortfall of belly hole capacity, high demand. We've had labor and COVID issues, which has affected capacity out of places like China. How are your members managing all of these things? Well, it's, it's a challenging time. And I have to tell you, they're having some difficult conversations with their customers. And they're having to explain uh, that uh, rates are higher than they've been in the past. But it's not just on the air side. Like, you know, you, you've seen it in Ocean. Last year, a, a box uh, coming from Asia was 2000 Now it's 20000 maybe even more at times. But, to, but of course, th then you're subject to lots of bottlenecks. And if you're a Christmas retailer or someone having to get essential goods into the U.S., you're probably overflying the bottlenecks using charters. A lot of forwarders are managing air freighter charters. And of course, they're also uh, arranging for passenger freighter charters, uh, i.e. boxes in the seats and, and in the bellies of the plane. So uh, I would say that depending on the appetite of the shipper and how much they need the cargo there, uh, we're, we're engaging in some very interesting and sometimes uh, difficult discussions. Just uh, looking at the nature of this year's peak season now, for those who don't follow the air cargo market who are listening in, traditionally we would talk about the, the global air, air freight peak season would be a Q4 spike of varying degrees. That's how we would normally look at that. But when we look at 2021's peak, we, we were talking about those stratospheric rates. The latest volume data seems to suggest that this peak might be a very different shape to a, a sharp spike. It seems to have started as early as August, perhaps, as shippers rushed to get inventory in and possibly due to those problems at ports and on the ocean supply chain as well. So I guess as we're already in the Q4 season, the, the question that comes to my mind is if the peak started so early, when might it end? And in fact, what does an end to this peak look like given we're still so far away from a mass return of intercontinental passenger services and the extra capacity that will bring into the market? Well, we climbed the mountain earlier in the year and we've stayed at that peak. We haven't come down. And if you talk to various experts, I, I was uh, speaking to a few airlines over at the IATA's World Cargo Symposium in Dublin a couple of weeks ago. They see this lasting well uh, throughout 2022 and even to uh, 2023. I, I think that we're going to probably see uh, some easing after November 8th, when the United States opens its borders to European travelers. At that point in time, there will be added passenger capacity, probably wide body capacity on routes back and forth to Europe. And over time, probably in the short term, I would say, it, you're, these rates are going to stay high because don't forget those passengers bring luggage with them. And that's going to probably reduce air freight capacity on those flights. So it won't be an, an instant reaction. But over time, once that market begins to saturate again with flight capacity, we might see an, an easing of rates. We've touched on earlier in this podcast the and in previous podcasts, the U.S. supply chain and all of those problems. It's easy to characterize that as starting at L.A. Long Beach, but it's, it's not just about vessel queues off LA Long Beach is not just the ports, it's a lack of truck drivers, there's a lack of rail capacity, it's a lack of warehousing, there's worker shortages. 
How has the U.S. air freight supply chain coped with all of those challenges? Right. So, you know, it's a supply chain and, and that means there are lots of links to it. And so uh, we've had to be very creative. The forwarding community is always creative to begin with. And, you know, we're seeing unprecedented delays at the major airports, Chicago, Los Angeles, Boston, uh, JFK. And so, you know, you've seen truck queues that last four, six, sometimes eight hours. You got to remember something like these facilities, these airports, especially in the cargo areas, haven't seen a significant investment for 40 or 50 years. So they just aren't built in many uh, situations to handle the types of, of truck volumes that we're seeing now. So what are the, what do the folders do? Well, they're masters of creativity and, and they're looking for alternatives. Let me point to two airports that right now were, were not on the radar screen prior to COVID, but now are, are prominent. One is uh, Rickenbacker outside of Columbus, Ohio, which was a, a, a former military base that the state of Ohio uh, took over a number of years ago. And the limited brand started flying uh, charter flights out of Asia 30 years plus ago. And now others have found it as a, as a place to land freighter aircraft, offload and get out of there quickly. But even they are seeing stress. There's also Rockford, Rockford, Illinois right now, 65 miles west of Chicago. They're seeing increased uh, activity. We have, you know, many, we have about 200 members in the Air Forwarders Association. I spoke to one the other day. He's arranged this, this last month, he arranged 80 charters going into these airports, avoiding O'Hare altogether. Just because he realized, even though it's 65 miles away from O'Hare and it, you know, it, it, it's a challenge to truck into the Chicago area, he'd be waiting for hours, days, perhaps getting his freighters offloaded at Chicago. So we've had to see some, some extreme creativity. Let me tell you another area that's just kind of interesting too. We have some members right now that are actually chartering their own maritime vessels and going to ports outside of the traditionally used ports, Los Angeles and, and uh, Savannah and others, and hoping to, to get faster service in that way, smaller ships. They're not easy to get, but they're doing it because the shippers are telling them, listen, we can't miss the Christmas rush. We don't want holes in our shelves and our reputations at risk. That's why we need this creativity. You mentioned O'Hare there, but look, where, where these big holdups are at the actual airports, how many extra days are we looking at? During normal times, a freighter lands, it's offloaded, could be all, all told four to six hours before the cargo is, is available, maybe a little more, but, you know, and, and recoverable maybe a couple hours after that. Not, not, not that long. Um, and... You know, during these times, it could take days because the warehouses are full too. When I was at O'Hare a few weeks ago, you could see containers as far as the eye could see. And they had these, these freighters that, that just do nothing but make round trip flights. They come into O'Hare, they offload, boom, out they go back to Asia again. They come back the following day. And, and so what's causing this is not only the lack of infrastructure space, of course, the lack of labor. And Mike, I'll tell you, the biggest challenge is, is credentialing the workers to get them on this, the secure identification areas. Because, you know, each airport, the way the U.S. law is that the process is that each airport does its own background checking on the worker. And they have to go to Customs and Border Protection, a federal U.S. agency, to get a custom stamp. That can take some time, too. So you have a new worker. You're probably paying them whatever, whatever the going rate is. It's not a super high wage, 
but that worker could be faced with three, four, sometimes five weeks to get that badge. What do you think the worker's going to do? They're going to leave. They're going to go work at Burger King or McDonald's or something like that, right? Because they want to get to work right away. So you have the shortage of workers within the ground handling environment. And then, of course, you, you compound that with the lack of warehousing and poor road infrastructure and whatnot within these airports. And you have yourself a cocktail for some significant delays, far exceeding what they normally are. Is there anything the Biden administration could do to speed up some of these processes? We've seen them being... I'll, I'll use the word proactive down at LA Long Beach, but that's causing quite a bit of controversy there with some new fees. Is there more that could be done at the airports to beat that supply chain? I'm glad you asked that because I, I, I think that there is more to be done. Yes, they could be doing more. It starts with the U.S. Congress, though, I believe in that. And this is a long-term fix, but there's $25 billion set aside in this infrastructure package that they're trying to, to pass whenever it passes that will go to airports. How much of that's really going to go to the cargo area improvements? I'm not so sure. So we really need to appeal to the Biden administration for that. And we did submit comments, you know, they're doing a, a uh, supply chain review here and we did submit comments and we did express that concern. And we think that opening up the ports 24 seven in Long Beach or rather Los Angeles, Long Beach is a good move, but you have to remember something. Where's cargo going to go? When you, and we have no truckers. We're 80,000 truckers in the hole here. And by 2030, they're forecasting this to be 120,000. So there's a, there's a piece of legislation now for the U.S. Congress called the Drive Safe Act, which would allow 18-year-olds trained by the U.S. military, that been in the military, because in the military here in the United States, they're driving tractor trailers and maybe monitored by the military and the federal government to drive these uh, trucks. Another thing that could be done is you know, we have a, a large immigrant influx coming into the United States now. Maybe trucking is a, is a suitable avenue uh, when we can't find U.S. workers to drive the trucks. Maybe that's another a way to approach the issue. Autonomous trucking is a long way off. I mean, even if the technology is there, the regulations aren't there yet. Policy is not caught up with, with technology. So we, we have a long way to go. And, and I think that for the foreseeable future, yeah, you can open up the ports 24-7, but if you can't get the chassis, you can't get the truckers, you can't get the drivers, it can be a drop in the bucket. It's a good step forward, but we have a long way to go. You mentioned earlier, Brandon, that forwarders are, are pretty much doing whatever they need to to get this cargo in. You mentioned chartering ships, uh, using different ports, chartering aircraft even. Are we going to see more of that through 2022, given the nature of this market? Yeah, so I think that anything that can fly right now that's a freighter is up in the air. And I think that that's going to continue through the year. And to maybe a bit lesser extent, you're going to see less passenger freighters. Not because of lack of demand, Mike. It's, it's because those airlines are going to want to accommodate the search and passenger traffic. And, it, you know, freight's been great for the airlines. It's been an economic lifeboat for them. It's kept the pilots flying. It's kept the airplanes going so they didn't have to park the planes and, and recertify them and whatnot. But the reality is, is that, they, you know, airlines fly pastures and cargo is always ancillary, unfortunately. But that said, you know, I, I expect that demand will, will stay up there. And uh, we are already seeing companies, as a matter of fact, like Eastern Airlines, as an example, announced a few last month that they were, had just purchased 35 777s and they're converting them to uh, light package freighters. And they're not the only ones. So 
they think that demand's going to continue, at least for the foreseeable future. And we would tend to agree with them based on what we're seeing in the marketplace right now. These uh, customers want their goods to market. And, you know, if we have another critical situation as we did with PPE and, and COVID, we need to be ready for that as well. And it could be a, a challenging situation. Brandon Freed, thanks for joining me on the Lodestar podcast. Thanks for having me, Mike. Alex, what's your take on when all of this ends? Well, talking to the airlines, the um, the outlook remains pretty strong. I recently spoke to Etihad and they have taken seats out of five triple sevens. So it's quite operationally expensive, quite inefficient, but they think that they'll keep going until next summer or possibly longer. So that gives us an idea of what the airlines are thinking about the cargo yield situation and, and demand. And it looks likely that Etihad might order more freighters too. So it's been what a perfect storm of demand. Inventories are low, consumer demand strong, shipping's in trouble, and there's just continuous strong demand in air, which we're expecting to see for some time. I mean, everywhere we look, we're, we're seeing the real economic impact of part shortages and retailers lacking uh, inventory and higher supply chain costs. I mean, which, as you know, we're seeing this in rising inflation, but we're also seeing it on bottom lines. I was looking at semiconductor shortages and some of the latest financials, Volkswagen said it missed out on $500 million of profit due just down to the lack of semiconductors. Apple had an estimated loss in profits of $6 billion. These bottlenecks and shortages are creating real challenges for shippers. I think we're seeing that right across the world and right across every sort of supply chain, which is a great time for me to turn to Susan Wadzunas, IKEA Supply Chain Operations Manager. Hello, Susan. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Thank you so much. It's a privilege to be here. IKEA has... 462 stores around the world in 60 markets. You source from 50 countries and you complete more than 2 million shipments by all modes each year. We've had a tumultuous 18 months. Can you explain the current state of play for your supply chains? Where are the critical disruptions you are facing now as the holiday season closes in? No, uh, first of all, I think during the last 18 months, we have seen an increased interest in improving life at home and a very high demand on IKEA products overall. And at the same time, then, of course, we are facing the industry-wide constraints and disruptions like many others. Uh, and that has an impact on IKEA's value chain. And we continue to operate in a very volatile situation. Then I want also to point out that there are many factors that are uh, contributing to the situation we are experiencing right now, including availability of raw materials, of components, of disruptions in operations, both in production and in logistic services, but then also, of course, connected to the ocean and the land transportation capacities. And we have been operating now in a continuous peak season for the last 18 months, and it doesn't slow down. Then with also the complexity in our supply chain, as, as you started off with saying that, you know, we, we are selling products in many countries. We are also sourcing products today from more than 50 countries. So, of course, the supply chain network is very complex. The situation by that very, very much from market to market. Uh, and it also very, very much from day to day uh, in the stores or in the sales channels that we have. So we are doing our utmost now together also with our partners and the carriers to make sure that we have our products available in for our customers. And we are producing and supplying much more than we have ever done before. 
but it's simply not enough. Then if we look at the specific disruptions that we are facing right now, of course, we are impacted by terminal and port closures out in, in China, uh, which has happened the last couple of months. And then other congestions we see in North America, for instance, in the ports, but also in Europe. We have had strikes in Italy, the, in the ports in Italy uh, now the last uh, couple of weeks as well. Uh, and then, of course, we see big impact also of the lockdowns of societies. So this fall, we have had a lockdown in India, Vietnam, Malaysia. That is one of that is impacting our supply out from Asia Pacific. And on top of that, we also feel the impact of the flooding, so are the typhoons and other kind of unforeseen disruptions that we are experiencing in, in various parts of the supply chain of IKEA. Obviously, you've got this very complex supply chain, and then you've you know you mentioned you've got those inputs, and then you've got to then you've got to get the finished products out into the store shelves. Is it a case of that in terms of getting that product to store? Is the supply chain tail now wagging the dog, so to speak? I mean by that, are these bottlenecks now a key determinant of what products you can sell where and when, and and presumably at what cost? Because I guess. Higher transport costs affect the profitability of all of your products in by by line, uh, and weigh heavily overall on the company in terms of the bottom line. Are increasingly, I would imagine. So, given the continued volatility and the supply chain constraints, and that we in some areas don't have enough transport capacity to meet than the demand, uh, we are focusing on making the products that our customers love the most uh, available for our customers. So we have taken some and needed to take some bold decisions when it comes to prioritizations of what products to send from operations point of view. And we're focusing the availability on this top selling range. But also then, of course, we need to take in consideration the seasonality of the range. So for instance, we need to be able to sell our outdoor range uh, when it comes to spring and summer or Christmas when Christmas is coming. Uh, and all of this, we need to then make sure in operations that we prioritize this range uh, when it comes to them. The specific port-to-port relations, it's really on detail level in this uh, network. When it comes to the cost, uh, we are, of course, not immune to increase costs connected to our supply chain. Even though I think we have benefited uh, a lot also from having very close collaborations with our partners during the last 18 months. We see increases, not only connected to freights uh, or ocean rates or land transportation, but also connected to raw materials, energy and production. And right now it's too early to say what or how those increased costs will impact our customers in our different markets. But I want to point out that we remain committed to the business model that we have, where affordability is one of the main pillars. And we strive to take out cost every year in our supply chain in order to achieve that uh, ambition. And then, of course, we are doing our utmost now to minimize the, the cost increases. So to also minimize the impact uh, for our customers. I mean, we, we hear a lot about the rising inflation in Europe and the US and elsewhere. At the end of the day, as much as you take out those costs, some of those costs have got to be passed through to consumers. And, and that becomes part of this sort of this rolling increase in inflation that we're seeing across economies, I guess, is would that be correct? So it is too early right now to say what kind of impact it will have. I think over the years we are also because we are, uh, of course, our products and the range that we have is uh, dependent on a lot of uh, commodities. So over the years we have both increases and decreases, and there we try to really navigate in order to minimize the impact. 
You mentioned navigating to to minimize the impact. How are you doing that in terms of managing your own logistics capacity? Is there anything you're doing to to increase capacity or or maybe take control of that capacity to help manage those costs? Anything specific? So during the last 18 months and during the pandemic, we have taken a lot of actions. We have quite a broad portfolio of different initiatives and actions we have taken. Uh, Many extraordinary actions that we have never tried out before. But I want to emphasize also that the biggest impact on increasing our capacity and really getting uh, goods out from our sending units is to work very close uh, with our partners and with our carriers. We have a strong partnership agenda in IKEA. Uh, and I truly believe that we have benefited a lot from that, both when it comes to producing goods, but also when it comes to supplying and transporting goods. So we have really had a very strong collaboration with our carriers during this period of time, and we will continue to have it. And that helps us to stay close to replanning, to make sure that we execute on the capacities that we have and reorganizing ourselves uh, when we execute. Then we take pride in being a supply chain oriented retailer, and we have a strong local presence out close to the realities, close to the uh, sending units, close to the production units, close to the retailers. Uh, And by having that, we can also stay agile and be very flexible and take those daily decisions that are needed uh, in order to really navigate in this environment that we are. Then we have also broadened our portfolio when it comes to service providers. We have added more partners. So we have contracted uh, more carriers during this period of time. To take pressure of the ocean capacity, we have put goods on uh, train. And so rail freight from China to Europe uh, during the past years. We have never done that before. And now recently as well, we started from Vietnam to Europe via rail with some, some goods. Then we have utilized alternative containers uh, when uh, our normal than 40 foot containers uh, have not been available. And we have done that together with our partners. And we have also taken each and every opportunity that there has been on the market. So in this case, we have also chartered vessels together with our partners uh, in this, but that has not been something that uh, is a systematic approach from our side. But when we have had the opportunity, we have charted full vessels. Uh, and then, of course, we are also working on exploring regional uh, supply opportunities. So also where we can uh, increase regional production, uh, we are doing that. And then, of course, we also have the benefit in IKEA to control both supply and sales. So we have done a lot of sales steering activities as well to make sure that we focus uh, on the goods that we have available for our customers. You mentioned some of your partners there. Are you happy with the performance of, say, your ocean carrier partners over the last 18 months? They've had a lot of criticism from shippers. Um, What's your take on, on that criticism or on their performance? Uh, I believe that everyone is leaning forward in the circumstances that we are experiencing uh, and we are all impacted by the disruptions and the volatility that is in the market. And there is a lot of factors also where it's not possible to influence directly. So uh, I would say that, of course, we have a lot of improvement potentials together with our partners, but also we in IKEA can uh, be better in creating preconditions for for getting lifting performance up, for instance. But that is something that we are continuously working with together with our partners. But will, will you sort of emerge from, from this pandemic with different partners than you went into it with? 
Uh, we are always, uh, every year, reviewing our portfolio of carriers and, and we take into consideration many different dimensions. It's cost, it's performance. It is, uh, you know, important for us to share the ambitions when it comes to sustainability and quality and, and other agendas. You mentioned earlier that you, you source in product from over 50 countries. Has any of this affected how you will go about sourcing in the future? Are you re-examining your supply chains in light of what's happened? And do you need more resilience, for example? I mean, do you, are you looking at a different long-term strategy now than you had two years ago? Yeah, it's a good question. We are actually right now doing a light touch remission on our, on our supply strategy. Uh, where all the learnings that we have had during the last 18 months will, of course, be considered. Uh, we are evaluating how we can create an even more resilient supply chain. Uh, you know, what parts of the supply chain we need to uh, maybe increase flexibility. We are also evaluating how we can long-term create a more resilient supply chain. In both part of the value chain, we need to add flexibility. But also, uh, if we need to make, or if there are opportunities to make changes in the production footprint that we have. And would you look at maybe sourcing more from closer to, to market, perhaps? So that is one of the questions we need to put the light on. We are already today uh, in many of the continents where we are operating quite regionally uh, strong. So if we look at uh, Europe, for instance, 70% uh, of what we are selling in Europe is produced in Europe. Uh, and 80%, I think it is in Asia-Pacific, what we sell in Asia-Pacific is also produced in Asia-Pacific. So we already have quite a strong regional setup in those markets. But of course, we are looking at one opportunities that we can to come closer. But also, of course, we are also staying strong to the direction we have in IKEA to continue to be affordable, accessible, uh, and also have a positive impact when it comes to society and the planet. Susan Wazunas, thank you so much for joining me on the Lodestar podcast. That was very interesting. Thank you. Alex, we, we started this podcast at COP26, and I think that's probably a fitting place to finish. But linked into that is something I want to discuss first, which I found personally quite disappointing. And it's not necessarily climate change. It's a threat to the UK-EU trade from yet another post-Brexit dispute. It's not Northern Ireland. It's fishing licenses. Now, we've got non-European listeners out there, and they're probably thinking this sounds ridiculously small-minded and inconsequential. And, that, and I think... That's because it is. But for those listeners, um, I kid you not, we have the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson and French President Emmanuel Macron have been spending their time in the lead up to COP26, not trying to save the world, but threatening each other with a trade war. Now, as we record this in the first week of November, there's a real risk that EU customs checks on shipments from the UK could be stepped up in retaliation for what is viewed as a failure to give French fishermen enough scallop fishing licenses off Jersey or somewhere. Um, it's hard to even follow. France has even been threatening to cut energy supplies to Channel Islands. So Alex, once again, the freight logistics industry, in fact, trade in general, seems to be just viewed as collateral damage in these interminable Brexit rows. It does. And it's so disappointing to see. I mean, when the referendum result came out, I remember thinking, oh, oh God, we've got to talk about this for another five years. And, and here we are still talking about it. And trade and business has been not put at the forefront of anyone's thoughts. The whole thing's been so politicised. I mean, there's, there has been some good signs. I mean, French and Dutch forwarders, when you speak to them, many of them have done really well out of Brexit. 
So I think it's just the, the, the British side that, that the business has just been pushed and shoved and, and not put at the forefront of the government's plans, really. And um, it would be very helpful for the industry, I think, if the political point scoring ended. I think you're right about the political point scoring. I mean, really, if you're looking at the national interests of France, the UK, the EU, this should be solved by low-level bureaucrats over a phone call. They shouldn't involve the prime minister and the president when they're supposed to be leading the world on climate change. The way I sort of see it is this is more likely to escalate just because it's in the political interests of both leaders to a degree. I mean, the, the reality in the UK and France right now is a lot of right-wing media and politicians love an Anglo-French sovereignty scrap. Yes, I think business should have a far greater say in the outcomes. And you're right, low-level bureaucrats could probably fix this without the ridiculous sort of macho posturing that we're getting at the moment. They have got more important things to think about. I mean, UK exports in the three months to the end of August were down 13% compared to 2019. But I, I think the political reality is Macron's got an election next year and... Boris Johnson does well in the polls when he starts a fight with Europe. So um, that might be the reality. He loves a bit of sabre rattling. He really does. It's frustrating for people in our industry, but it's on a wider level. I think we're, we're coming through a pandemic and we're looking at the global failures on climate change for so many years. And, and right through all of that, maybe we should have perhaps learned that national solutions to global problems simply don't work. But I digress. Alex Lenane, thanks for joining me today. It has been a pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Nice to talk to you. I'd like to thank our sponsor, Forto, for supporting this episode. An additional shout to the Baltic Exchange for giving us exclusive access to their fantastic range of regulated indices. And a big thanks also to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back soon.